Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Several years ago, I had the, uh, had the privilege of going on a mission trip to central Mexico. I've talked a lot about that trip because it was... I guess that trip is where I, I probably saw God move the most in my whole life, just in that, in that week, in that environment. It was just such a, such a dramatic experience that really just, uh, God just showed up and showed out in my life, and so it just stands out in my mind. Um, we worked with a local church planner, served among an ancient people group. I mean, it was just such a, such a phenomenal thing. But if you've ever been on a mission trip, one of the things that, that you can't avoid is, is just the change in scenery. Going somewhere different, seeing different parts of the world, you, you know, obviously the people are why we go, but, but some of the places that, that, that just seeing such dramatic change of scenery from what we're accustomed to. That particular trip had us serving in the shadow of Pico de Orizaba. Um, it was the third tallest mountain in North America. It's the tallest volcano in North America. And, and I'm, a, I'm a Georgia boy. I had never seen a volcano before. But when you first see it coming over the horizon from Mexico City, you don't, you don't think too much about it. But when you're nearby, it is an absolutely stunning sight. For this Georgia boy who'd never seen a, a real-life volcano before with glaciers on the top of it, it was, it was a mo- remarkable. But as we were moving around different ministry sites, we kept seeing signs like this that would show up in various places. It reminded me of a road sign that I saw down on the south side of Atlanta, and it said something along the lines of uh, low-flying aircraft. And I thought, if I'm on a road that has a sign that says low-flying aircraft, that should say road closed, right? (laughs) So seeing volcano warning signs uh, everywhere certainly were an an interesting thing. I I think about when I was a kid how unsettling it was to kind of drive around on the north side of Lake Chickamauga seeing the evacuation signs for the nuclear plant. It's like, are you really going to have that much time to say, I think I need to get out of town? I, I don't know. But if you've never been around a volcano, which most of us probably haven't, then the, the warnings of a potential eruption were very unsettling. All the public buildings, including the churches, all had these warning posters in prominent locations. And so they remind me of the, I don't know, your workplace probably has them, the, the signs about minimum wage and, and workers' comp and all those, those, those mandatory uh, human resources signs that are put up. And the churches had these, these kind of mandatory signs that were posted in prominent locations. And, and it was all written in Spanish, but the pictures spoke a thousand words. And the pictures had, were pictures of like debris falling. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I don't know what to do with this information. I mean, you know, there's a volcano, it's going to erupt. There's ash and earthquakes and lava and fire. And I don't know really what to do with that, that information. Thankfully, uh, no, earth, no earthquakes or volcanic eruptions happened while we were there. Uh, but I guess they were always ready just in case. Uh, it occurred to me as we were working in these little rural churches in central Mexico that that was the first time that I'd ever been to a church where I might indeed experience the earth shake during a worship service. I don't expect that happening in Walker County. If it does, I'm sure it'll capture all of our attentions. 
Uh, of course, as we journey alongside this infant church, we've seen God show up in some really phenomenal, natural, uh, natural way, uh, just showing up in natural phenomenon. Uh, and specifically, you think back to Pentecost and the fire and the wind and, and God showing up in, in those ways. But today, as we look at Acts chapter 4, God literally shows up in the form of an earthquake in the church where they were meeting there. As you know from last week, uh, Peter and John were in the, in the hot seat. They had been agents of healing for this 40-year-old crippled man. And after the healing, they wanted to make sure that everyone knew that Jesus was the real power behind that healing that took place. And as a result, thousands of people chose to follow Jesus. But also as a result, they were arrested, brought before the, the Sadducees, the council there. They were called to give an account for what had transpired. This council was in a little bit of a bind, though. They were beholden to public opinion, which side, uh, who was, which was on Peter's side and John's side right now. So they threatened Peter and John, said, don't share the gospel anymore. Don't, don't talk anymore about this story. And Peter and John replied to them in one of the boldest rebukes that we see in the New Testament. They say there in Acts chapter 4, he said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. In other words, we're going to keep talking and you're going to have to deal with it. A bold statement coming from Peter and John, which leads us to where we pick up today in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words from Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Father, I'm grateful for your word, thankful for these men and the courage and the boldness with which they worked, but particularly today for a church that understands the importance of its prayer time. Lord, may we be a praying people and may the influence of this infant church continue to guide and direct us today, so many years removed. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. So this morning I want, as we consider the infant church, I want to consider how their prayer ministry ought to inform ours today. You know, somebody once asked if you had to pray to be a Christian. 
And that's an interesting question because technically that would make prayer a work that you have to perform in order to be saved. And I heard a very wise answer one time that said, you know, you don't have to speak to your wife to be married. But how healthy will that relationship be in the long haul if you choose to carry on without communicating? As we look at this, I want us to consider first and foremost the character of the audience of our prayers. Of course, the audience of our prayers is the Lord, and he shows up in this prayer as the church addresses him with various characteristics. And the first thing that they acknowledge about the Lord in their prayer is that he is the quote-unquote sovereign Lord. Now, that is an important title that is given to God. It is a unique title. It's not something that shows up in a frequent place in the New Testament. The word for sovereign Lord is literally despotes. Despotes. Literally, it means the Lord of the house. It's used ten times in the New Testament. Three of those times it's addressed to God directly in prayer. And then there's three of those times it's referred to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as you hear that word, you, you may actually hear a negative English word contained there. And you may hear the word despot in, in that word. And we hear despot and, and we think, well I don't want to have a ruler who is a despot. We don't want to have a, a president or a commissioner or somebody like that who is a despot. We think of somebody like a Fidel Castro as a, as a despot, as a tyrannical sort of ruler. But biblically this, this idea of despotes, it points to the fact that God has unlimited power. So when we pray to the Sovereign Lord, the Despotes, we are praying to one who has literally unlimited power. Consider that when we pray. That we're not praying to a God who is mute or deaf or, or, or handicapped in some way. We're not praying to a God who sleeps. We are praying to a God who literally has unlimited power. The first church understood this. They also acknowledge that He is the Creator. The church acknowledged that he is the Lord of the house, but they also specifically acknowledged that he was the Lord of creation. Listen to what they say there. They say that sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, acknowledging that God is the God of all creation, the maker of heavens, the heavens and the earth, it is God who establishes all the rules. That's not a popular opinion today. It is not a popular thing to say that there is a creator God who establishes all the rules, and when you violate those rules, you are stumbling into sin. But we are living in a day and time where it is not popular to claim that there is a sovereign creator. Creation comes up in this prayer because the church recognized, listen to this, a right understanding of creation leads to a right understanding of redemption. You cannot have a thorough understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done if you do not understand the very principles of the created order. In the last 150 years, liberal Christianity has done its best to erode the doctrine of creation. That, that maybe God didn't really do it like he said in Genesis 1 and 2. Maybe God actually did use a big bang or, or maybe God did use evolution to get us from where we are today. The problem with that pattern is that if you remove God as the creator, then you remove all the standards that creation reveals, which is why it's so important to the liberal side of Christianity today to remove that key doctrine because then you can run wild with whatever you believe. 
And, and just as a matter of principle, it's never a good idea to rip out the first few pages of a book that you're reading and start in the second chapter. It's never a good idea to tear out those first pages and say, I'll begin later on. When we get wishy-washy on the doctrine of creation, that's exactly what we're doing. We're taking the first pages of the book of Genesis, ripping them out, and throwing them in the trash. When we acknowledge that God is the creator, we are humbly recognizing that we fit into his plans and his patterns. We fit into his rules and his standards. We don't get to invent our own. We don't get to make our own way. We don't get to invent our own truth. As a matter of fact, there's no such thing as my truth. It doesn't exist. It begins with God. It ends with God because God is the creator and he establishes the rules. You see, this church has big plans in the book of Acts. They want to be agents of gospel change. They want to see their community absolutely transformed. They want to see the gospel message be carried to the ends of the earth because that was their commission. They want God to use them to heal and do signs and wonders that confirm the gospel message. But in order to accomplish that which is supernatural, you need to know the one who controls all the natural. That's the only way it works. But the third thing we see in acknowledging the audience of this prayer is that they recognize that God is the revealer of truth. This third aspect of God's character reminds us that truth comes from God. God could have made the world. He could have set everything in motion and stepped back and watched it unfold. He could have done that. But instead, God has made known to us over the course of time, he has made his will and his character known to us throughout the ages. You see, the church here acknowledges that God's word was revealed through David and through the Psalms, and God has continued to make himself known to us today through the, through the revealed word of God. If you want to know who God is, he's told you. He's put it into our hands to show us who he is, what his character is, what his expectations are. He has given it to us. I think about this infant church in the book of Acts. They only had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament to guide them. But they had the, the, the witness of that body in writing in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ, and they had exactly what they needed to know the truth. All that to say that when we pray, we need to remember who God is and what he has done. We need to keep that in mind. When we approach the throne in prayer, we're not speaking to some make-a-wish genie in a bottle. We're not speaking to some sort of baptized version of Santa Claus. We are speaking to the sovereign creator and revealer of all truth. That is who we speak to when we pray. That's somewhat intimidating to consider who it is that we speak to. But it's also mind-blowing to consider just the simple fact that this all-powerful, all-knowing being wants to have a relationship with each and every single one of us. He wants to have a, a conversation consistently and regularly with each and every single one of us. And God wants his church to thrive as they pursue him in obedience. That's what God wants. Prayer should not be so difficult when we consider the invitation that's being extended to us. Uh, imagine for just a second, imagine the, the one person in the world that you revere the most. I don't know who it is. 
Maybe it's a politician. If so, I've got some counseling time this week. I can talk to you. <laughs> Maybe it's an author. Maybe it's somebody who's written a book that, that has meant a lot to you. Maybe it's some sort of business leader that you revere the most. Think, think of that one person. If that one person whom you revere the most just called you up one day and invited you into a personal relationship, wanted to chat with you on the phone every morning about your day, it'd be hard to say no. If the person you revere the most, some, some coach, some of y'all, if, if Nick Saban would call you, you, you'd answer the phone every single time that it rang. Uh, I mean, there's guaranteed. You, you know you would, and all the Auburn fans are rolling their eyes. I'll tell you, somebody that I had tremendous respect for was, uh, was Truett Cathy, the, the founder of Chick-fil-A. Um, he is making chicken sandwiches in heaven now. I, I hear, hear from a good source. Um, one day, I got the opportunity to go, to go, to go meet him. And um, his office there at their corporate headquarters just outside the Atlanta airport, uh, his office is called the Treehouse. It's on the third floor. You walk into this big, this big office there at the end, and it's got windows that go all the way around, and all you can see are trees, which is why it's called the, the treehouse. They, they got the marketing department involved in that decision. And, uh, and I was there visiting with, with a couple of, couple of deacons that worked there, and, uh, and they said, they said, you want to go, go upstairs and see if we can meet Truett? I'm just going to knock on the door? Uh, yeah. And so we got to go upstairs, and his secretary was sitting there, one of the most delightful ladies I've ever spoke to. Just, I guess if you work for Truett Cathy, you probably have to be delightful. Um, and uh, we were talking, and she said, yeah, just go on in. And so we go in, and, and Truett Cathy's sitting there at his desk and just welcomed us in. And, and, I mean, I just intruded upon his day, and we got to have a chance to have a good conversation. And he said, um, he hollered to his assistant, he said, he said get the preacher a book. And, uh, and so she came in with, with a book that he had written, and it says autographed copy, and it's got Kathy's signature in there. And man, I was blown away that this guy was willing to take time out of his day to, to just hang out with me. And uh, so I got back to the office, and I sat down, and I just wrote out a little thank you note. Just, hey, thanks for taking time. Thanks for the book. Sent it to him. A couple days later, I got another book in the mail. A thank you for the thank you note. So then I started thinking, how far can I take this? <laughs> Run out of books, eventually start sending gift cards. <laughs> can you imagine the, somebody that you revere wanting that kind, of, that kind of relationship with you? You would jump at the opportunity to be in that kind of dynamic relationship. Listen, we've been invited both as individuals and as a body, into a personal, dynamic relationship with the sovereign Lord of all creation, who by his grace and by his word and by his power, he sustains us and he sustains the universe in which we dwell. And he wants to have an interaction with you on a consistent and regular basis. We would drop everything to, to have our favorite college football coach call us up every day and tell us what he's doing at practice this afternoon. Uh, we would, to have that sort of inside access. And God says, I want to have an interaction with you regularly, consistently, powerfully. Why is that so hard for us? Why do we struggle? Why do we wrestle 
in that regard. I think the character of this first century church helps us to understand why we may struggle in this regard, both individually and corporately. Consider the character of this first century church as they prayed. We're told that they, when Peter and John come back into the room, that they lifted their voices together there in Acts chapter 4 verse 24. They heard the story, they lifted their voices together to God, and then they proceed to enter into this time of prayer. You can't read the first four chapters of this book and not see anything other than unity in the church. They were committed to one another. Now, now we know this wasn't a permanent situation. We'll see that sin begins to creep into the church, and they start to to fracture to some extent. But but here's the deal. We look at this church, and we can easily identify the the issues when they arise. It's not complicated. We can can see it. We can diagnose it. We can call it out. Those sin issues are, are real, and we can see it. And when the things do come up, we understand it's legitimate things. It has to be dealt with. Can I just say this? Too many times our unity as the body of Christ in this day and time is fractured by things that aren't going to matter. I heard Matt Chandler say, you need to ask yourself before you get bent out of shape if this is going to matter 10,000 years from now. Is, is this thing that has worked you up so much, is it going to matter 10,000 years from now? I look at some of the ridiculous struggles that the church finds itself in today. And I can't help that, that these are things that they're not only not going to matter 10,000 years from now, they're not going to matter 10 months from now. If we're honest, I'm not suggesting there aren't serious issues that we're facing today. There are denominations that are being broken apart left and right by all of this liberalism that's creeped into the church today. We see the Methodist church wrestling with the LGBT LGBT stuff. It's likely there's going to be a new Methodist denomination at some point in time in the next two years as a result of these issues. You've probably heard some factions within our own denomination that uh, you've heard that there may be some folks who are promoting CRT, critical race theory. Let me just say as an aside, I mentioned this the other night in prayer meeting, if you don't know what CRT is, you're hearing it on the news. Fox News is talking about it. All the news channels are talking about CRT. I would encourage you as a church to get informed about what CRT actually is. And stop, not the soundbite, not the Facebook stories, okay? Forget that stuff. This is a great book that just came out a couple of weeks ago by Owen Strachan. It's called Christianity and Wokeness. It explores CRT from a biblical standpoint, from a solid, conservatively Christian point of view, and I would highly recommend this book to you. I'm in the middle of it, and it has been nothing but outstanding in terms of explaining this stuff from a biblical perspective to help us be able to have intelligent conversations about it. If your knowledge of CRT is limited to what you can share and post on Facebook, let me tell you, you don't know enough. Okay? You need to research more and understand what we're actually up against. And I will say this, these are serious issues. CRT is a serious issue. It is a worldview that it flies in opposition to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to know what it is. And it is a serious issue. But again, we need to understand those things that are worth our consideration and worth our debate and worth our disunity and those things that are not. The reality is, and we have to be honest about this, most of the stuff that breaks the unity of the church today isn't about LGBTQ, left-wing propaganda, CRT, or any other combination of alphabets that exist. That's not where our disunity is coming from. 
Most of our unity breakers are coming today because of selfishness, because of an unwillingness to forgive offenses, and an unwillingness to own our own mistakes. That's what breaks churches most of the time today. But here, this church lifts its voices together. They understand the threat that they're facing. There are forces that oppose their very existence and the spread of their message. What did the Sadducees say? You may not speak again in the name of Jesus. If you tell the church that you can't talk in the name of Jesus anymore, then what, do we have, what else do we have to talk about? If, if someone says you can't speak in his name anymore, then you can't. there's nothing else worthy of our conversation. I think the threat... It's just the same today. The only difference between today and then is that today we've got a problem. There's church buildings sitting everywhere, right? I mean, we live in the buckle of the Bible belt. I think we're probably even tighter than that. We're like the little hole in the belt that the little thing goes through in the belt of the Bible belt, right? I mean, there's literally churches on every corner. I don't know if that's for our good or not. There are churches on every corner. There are church buildings everywhere. And today the enemies of the cross recognize you can silence people, but it's hard to get rid of those buildings. But you know what they're doing today? It's such an interesting battle they're fighting. They're working to make sure that all the religious activity is restricted to these buildings that are sitting around. You've heard the language spoken. You've heard people in the political class talk about something called freedom of worship. Freedom of worship. Now, if you remember back to studying Constitution and things like that, we talked about freedom of religion, that, that the Constitution doesn't restrict the exercise of religion. But now we're saying that it's something called freedom of worship. Well, the problem with religion is religion happens everywhere. Religion's not confined by, by walls. Religion happens in our homes, in our businesses, in, in the public square. It happens everywhere. Worship happens in, in these buildings, in these confined spaces. The Heritage Foundation rightly observes, they said the right to live, work, and worship according to one's faith is a freedom foundational in our country. Many of the first settlers, having faced persecution in England, sought a place where they could freely worship and live according to their conscience without interference from the government. The founders were clear, and the Bill of Rights makes it fundamental to our constitutional order that the government should not infringe on the free exercise of religion. In recent years, however, Americans have increasingly faced attempts to water down this robust understanding of religious freedom to a mere freedom to worship. Through expansive government mandates and cultural pressures, this incorrect view of religious liberty argues that faith should remain a private affair relegated to personal activities or weekend worship services. Step outside the four walls of a home or house of worship and the robust protection of religious freedom ends. That's the world in which we find ourselves today. There is soon coming a day, and I believe it's in our lifetime, where the voice of the church is going to be shut out more and more. And what's so frustrating about this is that we're over here arguing about non-essential things. And the whole time the enemy is working to undergird our very existence. And if we're busy arguing about non-essentials, how in the world will we stand when we are challenged on those things that are essential? I don't believe we will. I can't help but think that the devil delights in a fractured, factioned church that can't stand to sit in the same room with one another, much less lift their voices together in prayer. 
we got to get this figured out as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to get this figured out or we're going to lose what little influence we've got in the nation. And our church here is going to start looking like churches in Europe, empty buildings that are being converted into museums and pubs and apartment complexes. This first church, we understand, they were united together. There was a sense of unity in their purpose, but we also understand that they were completely dedicated to the mission. What did they ask for? Lord, protect us, right? Lord, protect us. Don't let anything bad happen to us. Keep us safe, Lord, right? Pray for boldness. Boldness. Boldness is, is not keep me safe. It's, it's, Lord, give me the courage when I'm in danger to keep talking. Uh, they prayed for boldness. They wanted to be able to speak freely without concern for consequences. They understood. The only way that people would follow Christ is if they were able to freely bear witness. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom, they've, in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This church that we see in Acts chapter 4 would rather face stones and swords than have its witness silenced. I love how God answers this prayer. Just a couple of chapters, we encounter a deacon who's named Stephen. Stephen was a deacon, but he also had to be a pretty good preacher. And we find Stephen standing in the midst of an armed mob. They're ready to kill him, to murder him in the street. And Stephen stands there in the midst of this armed mob, and he pulls no punches when he bears witness to the gospel. His witness still stands as one of the boldest defenses of the gospel in church history. They take his life for it. They murder him in the square. We're about to encounter the disciples. They're under fire again. And this time they're, they're actually physically punished. And as they leave that physical punishment, we're told that they rejoice in the fact that they were able, they were counted worthy to suffer reproach because of the name of Jesus. Can you imagine what that would look like today if the authorities came in and drug some of us out and beat us because of our testimony? Would we rejoice in such an action? We'd be looking for lawyers, somebody to represent our case. These disciples said, we're so thankful we were counted worthy to suffer reproach because of Jesus. They prayed for boldness. God gave it to them. They prayed that they would be equipped to do what they had been called to do. They asked for signs and wonders and, and healings. That was their, their way of, of being equipped to, to do this job. Now, we don't see this much anymore. Why don't we see signs and wonders and healing much anymore? Because in this first century church, that was what was needed to confirm the message. 
But today we have the historical record and all that is explained therein. We have the revelation of the New Testament scriptures that confirm all that is needed. You have your testimony, which is authentic, which is what is needed. In Revelation chapter 12, we read about Satan's ultimate defeat. He is not defeated through miracles and signs and wonders. What we see in Revelation chapter 12, that Satan is defeated. In verse 10, he says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. How did they conquer him? Verse 11, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by what? The word of their testimony. For they love their lives or they love not their lives even unto death. It wasn't by the miraculous it's by the simple word of their testimony. We have these things. We're covered by the blood of the Lamb if we're in Christ. We have our witness to Christ, the word of our testimony. We don't have to have signs and wonders to confirm the message because we stand as living examples today of the power of God in our lives. If you aren't able to look at a non-believer and say, let me tell you what Christ has done in my life, then it may be that today Christ needs to do something in your life so that you have a story to tell. We still stand in need of the same thing those first-generation believers need. We need to be equipped to do the work. And so our prayer today should be this, God grant us boldness as we bear witness to God's work in our lives, and we bear witness to the power of the gospel to save each and every single one of us. And so may our prayers and our hearts reflect this truth. I love God's answer. Look at verse 31 of Acts chapter 4. They pray together this dynamic, theologically, doctrinally rich prayer. And verse 31 says, When they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We look at that and we think, man, the miracle's the earthquake, right? God answered. There's an earthquake. The place shook. There was no doubt that God was there, that God was moving, that God had heard. How would we respond if we gathered for prayer and God answered with the walls shaking? That's impressive. But I think what's more impressive than the earthquake is the power of this church that is manifest here. They continued to speak the word with boldness. We're told here they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There was no silencing them. They were under threat. They were under attack. Oppression was real, but they would not be silenced. And when we look at their boldness, there's no denying that that courage stemmed from two things. One, the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. We've seen that at Pentecost. It's real here. It's affirmed again here. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no denying that their boldness comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit, but we have to acknowledge this, that their boldness, their power, their passion 
came because of their connection to the Lord in prayer. Alistair Begg said this, he said, prayer, wish I could do it in his accent, prayer is an acknowledgement that our need of God's help is not partial but total. Yet many of our church prayer meetings have dwindled in size and influence. Ultimately, the explanation can be traced to spiritual warfare. If, as the hymn writer says, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees, then we may be sure that he and his minions will be working hard to discredit the value of united prayer. The evil one has scored a great victory in getting sincere believers to waver in their conviction that prayer is necessary and powerful. As a result, I want to challenge Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church to redouble its efforts to become a praying church. Certainly, each and every single one of us ought to be in our closets or our box forts. We ought to be in our closets before the Lord on a daily basis. I heard a recent statistic that said pastors in our churches are praying on average six minutes a day. Pastors are praying six minutes a day. And we wonder why we're losing ground in our culture. What would it look like for us to become a praying church? What would it look like for us as the people of God at Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church to come before the Lord on a consistent basis? We're in the process of converting one of our rooms in the fellowship hall back in the back into a space that's available for, for prayer. We hope to be able to make that available. If somebody says, hey, I'd like to go pray, we'd love to be able to make that room available for people to go in and have times of prayer before the Lord. What about men and women meeting for prayer during the worship service? Asking God to move in the hearts of the lost. What would that look like if we had a, just teamed up in pairs of two to go into the prayer room and pray during that time of worship? I want to see God move. That movement starts when we start to rattle the doors of heaven and let God hear our request. I want to be in that time where we pray as God's people and there's no doubt that God answers. How many times have we been to prayer meetings in church and nobody prays? We share our ailments and our boo-boos. You know, we share what's wrong with Sister Susie down the street. We do all those things. And then somebody prays for those things and the end. I don't know that we read God's word and we say that we're content with this. That this is okay. That this is an acceptable, you know, hum-ho, Right? It's, it is what it is. I don't see that in the Word of God. What I see in the Word of God is the church gathered for prayer in its most powerful, powerful position, bearing witness to the Word of God and preaching and praying together as the body of Christ. We see that here. And I want to challenge us today to work towards becoming that church. You'll see when you leave today, there's sign-up sheets available. We want to equip you to form teams to pray during worship services, just on a rotating basis, to have somebody in our prayer room on a regular basis praying during our worship services. I would invite you again, 
we still have prayer meeting on Wednesday night. I'd love to have a, a praying church on Wednesday night gathered together. But it's one of those things that's, um, that's, that's lost its importance in the grand scheme of this COVID world in which we live. I would invite you to redouble your commitment to that. Let us become a praying church committed to the Word of God, committed to a right relationship with God, committing to shaking the doors of heaven with our prayers on a regular and consistent basis. Let's pray to the Lord together now. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the power you show up in this church in such a, such a remarkable way. God, we know that for whatever reason, in this day and time, churches have lost, we've lost touch. Prayer has become one of those things that we have relegated to the, hopefully everybody's doing it at home. So God, would you help us to have that joy rekindled in our hearts? That God, that we would see a renewed desire within us, not just personally, but corporately, that we would come together for prayer. That you would stir within us, by your Holy Spirit, a renewed zeal to see the sovereign Lord of all creation move. Lord, we, we look at the times and we see that we are living in very concerning ages. And there are many threats, and there's much opposition to the gospel. And Lord, the only way we stand is if we as your people go to our knees. So may this infant church cast judgment against this veteran church. May these first century believers who haven't been saved very long Look at us who've walked with you for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And remind us of where our strength is found. And Lord, we're not asking for an earthquake. But we are asking for a renewed spirit of revival within us. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.